You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hello, so we're back with the small print and today our guest is Simon Dingle. So to start with, as usual, Simon, please introduce yourself the way you'd like to be introduced. Hello, I'm Simon. <laughs> That's great. Fantastic. So we've chosen you to help unpack what is going on with central bank digital currencies. So the purpose of this whole show is to get people more interested and more involved in the sort of policy questions that are going to affect them as citizens of a democracy. In order to be involved in those conversations, you have to firstly understand what's going on and then secondly, why it's important. And then hopefully once we've unpacked those ideas, you can make up your own mind. So we're not here to tell you what to think but rather to give you the information and tools to make informed decisions about the policies that are going to affect your life. And I definitely know from my perspective, the whole central bank digital currency thing is quite important in that regard. It does and will affect all of us. So to start with, Simon, can you explain what a central bank digital currency is? Sure. Thanks, Bronwyn. I mean, it's kind of weird to think about digital money in the context of of sort of fiat or, or government money because it, it already for, for all intent and purpose is digital. You know, yes, we have paper cash that's floating around in the system, but the beating heart of every um, central bank currency is already digital. So what we really mean when we talk about CBDCs is dialing that up to 11, I guess, uh, if you will. And uh, I suppose a lot of this conversation was sparked by the rise of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin um, and the idea that central banks could use the same or similar technology to drive more efficiency into what they're doing. So that's really what we need, mean by a central bank digital currency is central banks embracing new technologies to increase the digitalization of their currency. So what changes? What's the what's the big step, step up here when you talk about turning that dial to 11? What is what fundamentally changes for normal people out there or nothing? Yeah, I think in the short term, not very much. Um, firstly, a lot of where central banks are thinking in terms of this, i.e. using blockchains to do what they've pretty much always done, just uh, dialed up to 11, which we'll get into, is a pretty bad idea um, that won't change anything in the lives of normal people in the short term. But in the long term, it takes us to an interesting place where the notion of private banks, for example, disappears in time because they just have no place. You can bank directly with the state. Instead of going and opening a bank account, you would just get a state account. Um, and the central bank digital currency will just flow into that account from wherever it's coming and the state will have full control over this digital economy. So that to me is a substantial change. Firstly, it's a terrible idea. And secondly, it's something that um, if it falls into the wrong hands, becomes quite dangerous. You know, we, we've seen examples around the world of countries that have frozen bank accounts in their economies because they've decided that's economically necessary, or uh, in worst cases, literally gone into bank accounts and taken funds out. We've seen that happening in parts of South America, Cyprus, etc. Um, with CBDCs, it gives the state even more control and ability to do that kind of thing should they decide it's necessary. So that's a pretty big change in everyone's lives. And of course, it also allows for tax to be automated in time. So there's a lot of philosophical discussions that, uh, that it potentially opens up. Um, and whenever I get into this discussion and I raise these, these alerts, I always get bombarded with emails and tweets from people going, no, but in, you know, in the case of South Africa, for example, the central bank has said they'll never do that. It's going to be private. They're going to enable the banks to be participants. And I'm like, 
yeah, sure, all of that is true, and that's fantastic. But stated intent never matters. What matters is what how this is going to play out in reality, and and that's what I'm more concerned with. Yeah, so essentially it allows our, our governments and our central banks to do what they've been doing anyway, but a bit more efficiently and with a bit more control. It yeah. also, as you start rolling it out a little bit further into the future, when you start to not only have a central bank digital currency, but when you actually replace everything else. So when you actually make those other forms of fiat no longer valid currency, that does give central bankers and governments once again almost godlike control over their, their monetary supply and velocity mm. and, and everything else. But that does require quite a few steps before we get there. You have to actually remove physical cash from your society. You have to no longer mm. allow banks to create money as they do currently, which I'm not sure many people are aware of. So maybe if you want to comment on that, how even private banks at the moment are involved in the sort of money supply and creation process. So I think that's an mm. interesting concept to understand before you can sort of unpack what the what the, the long game is with central bank digital currencies yeah do you have a comment on that yeah sure i mean i'm i'm not an economist uh, i find e econ e economics quite uh, <laughs> i can't even pronounce it <laughs> i find it quite amusing especially when people talk about macroeconomics as if it's a science because um <laughs> it it clearly isn't but um so I come at this from a technology angle, um, and you know I'm 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 not an authority on issuance or distribution of of money, etc. And of course, there are nuances between countries. But essentially, monetary supply starts with the central bank, of course. Um, so in South Africa, you know that would be the South African Reserve Bank. New money is issued, or rather, the ability for new money <laughs> is enabled by the central bank. But as you were alluding to private banks are then in charge of actually distributing this new money, which basically means changing some numbers on a computer so that there are more rands available in their systems than there were before, and making sure that those numbers matched what the central bank has told them they're allowed to do. Um, and then they can go and the prime thing that they do is create new loans from this because that's what really gets the economic flywheel going. So um, they'll go, uh, go and lend money to somebody who's broken their back to buy a house and now like a group of people who just changed a number on a screen decides whether or not they can do it with this imaginary stuff that's come out of nowhere. Um, and so I, I refer to this whole system as the bullshit standard of money because that's really what it's based on. There's no sort of real world thing um, that the value of the money is pegged to. It's just pegged to policy, whims of bureaucrats, um, you know, what people think we should be doing right now, which they usually get wrong, especially in South Africa. Um, and so actually I should I should go back on that because our central bank does a, a great job. I was thinking of bureaucrats more broadly. But but um but but that's it in a nutshell. Of course we had the gold standard before, which meant that the value of our money used to be pegged to actual gold that was kept in, in reserve. Um, so that gave us uh, at least some idea that there was a real thing and we couldn't just go and make more money out of thin air unless we had the real thing backing it, but that no longer exists. So I think that's it in a in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that the the point that's that's probably important for people listening to understand is that at the moment our central banks and our governments have quite a lot of control over what goes on in our economy and the amount of money we have in our system and what it's worth. It's not backed by a real tangible value, but it is backed up by the government's monopoly on force and the ability to sort of send you to jail if you don't sort of play by the rules mm. of the system, which is what practically most of our democracies are based on, the fact that we see sort of monopoly of certain controls and certain abilities to control us to a single authority being the government, which we elect in a d democracy, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's essentially what mm. sort of backs up our monetary system as well as our social systems. 
But even within that system at the moment, private actors, whether that's you or me or retail banking clients or consumers or citizens, whatever you want to call it, and private banks also have some sort of an influence over our monetary systems and also have various different loopholes that we can use to sort of not be surveilled by our governments with every single transaction that we make. I mean, we know this. We live in Africa. Something like 30% of our economy is in the so-called gray market, which takes place outside of the eye of the government. The government doesn't know necessarily what transactions are taking place when we are using physical cash in a bag, to use that analogy. When we get to fully digitized economies, that option is no longer available. So no, I've heard you refer to sort of central bank digital currencies as being sort of fully automated surveillance money, or surveillance mm -hmm. money is probably a, a sort of easy way to understand what changes here. There are less middlemen in the system, so uh, from some, some perspectives that could be quite a good thing because it does reduce costs, it does make transactions more efficient. There are very valid pros from a governance and organization perspective as to why central bankers and central planners would like to use these systems. But one of those key reasons is that they can see everything that's going on in the marketplace. And that means that you can't really avoid tax. In fact, you might not even have to file a tax return because tax could just be sort of accounted for as part of your transaction. That could all be automated. Very efficient once again, but it does sort of mean that there's there's no privacy left when we start to roll these systems out to sort of post-cash yeah. economies that you and I are able to hold anything back from our governments. So, of course, some people would once again say, if you've got nothing to hide, what's the problem? And that's perhaps a good question to ask you, Simon. What's the problem with a more automated, more transparent financial system, which is basically how these things yeah. are being sold to us? And why do we need doors on public toilets? You've got nothing to hide, you know? Yeah, it's why? Like, <laughs> so I, I think the privacy discussion is an, is an interesting one and, and super nuanced. And But I, I also like thinking about it in terms of control because it's about who's in charge right now. So, you know, in South Africa, we actually have a really good central bank. The South African Re Reserve Bank is an example of how good central banks can be, actually. Um, and we've got Lesetja Kanyahu, who's our Reserve Bank governor, who's, you know, award-winning in Davos. He's... He really is is you know one of the best central bankers that's ever been born and so and so people look at our system and go well it's great why don't we just make it more efficient and of course that's all true just like surveillance uh, cameras on every corner make people safer they do that's just a fact um, but it's more about what you're enabling in terms of control so for example can you imagine if in germany in the 20s they'd introduced a central bank digital currency and given the state control over every citizen's bank account should they want it what would have happened you know when the national socialists took over and now got to decide who's allowed to have bank accounts and money and who doesn't you know it's uh, it's all fine until the wrong people take charge of it and so I think that's why those of us in the cryptocurrency community are concerned about CBDCs. It's not because of the stated intent um, and what the current um, bureaucrats and politicians are aiming to achieve, which is mostly noble, you know, driving efficiencies into welfare, for example, um, getting rid of corruption, creating more efficiencies. Those are all good things, and CBDCs will undoubtedly enable them. But we already have all of those things available sitting and waiting in the form of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin that can be used tomorrow, um, that has already been developed, already been adopted. Um, but most importantly is the antithesis of a central currency that can be hijacked by bad actors. Um, 
And so, you know, the most important feature I suppose to talk about in that regard when we think about Bitcoin is decentralization. Um, and the fact that it's a trustless network where nobody is in charge of it and nobody can take over and, and kind of, you know, decide who gets to have accounts on the network, et cetera, or look at their transactions. Um, and so a CBDC might, from a technological perspective, look like a cryptocurrency, but it's actually the antithesis of something like Bitcoin. It's the exact opposite thing, not because of the technology it uses, but because of the centralization that it introduces into the monetary system or reinforces rather, because, of course, monetary systems are already centralized. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of what we're trying to achieve with, with cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin more specifically. Okay, so before we get into what on how Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies could be an alternative to central bank digital currencies for citizens, maybe you can just take a quick minute to say what is the worst case scenario? So you alluded to some of those. What is the worst case scenario for a citizen living in South Africa where we do know that our politicians might not be the whitest of white hats, if you want to sort of put it that way, that we have had problems with things like graft and corruption, and there are threats with things like nationalization and expropriation without compensation. These are real conversations taking place our constitution is being amended to allow more powers in that regard what is the worst case scenario should south africa roll over to a central bank digital currency perhaps phase phase cash out of the system like india has done very very quickly overnight these things have happened yeah. so governments are able to do these things what's the worst case scenario that could happen for a south african citizen Look, it's it's difficult to to imagine, um, Bronwyn, and I'm always a, I'm always kind of wary of trying to predict the future or make forward-looking statements because none of us knows what's going to happen, and it might turn out just fine. Um, yeah, but you can fine. imagine some terrible terrible scenarios. For example, you know, xenophobia is quite prevalent in South African society. Unfortunately, it's a terrible blight on South Africa. Um, and you can imagine a politician seizing power of the ANC or becoming sufficiently powerful within the ANC, who's our ruling party, um, being xenophobic or having those tendencies and deciding that immigrants and, you know, their businesses need to be isolated or or kind of rejected from South African society and economy. Um, and now having, you know, uh, an instrument in a CBDC where the state really can decide who has accounts and who doesn't and starts to ice out particular people in society. Luckily, we'll still have Bitcoin and there's nothing they can do to take it away from us. And we'll all just start using that instead, hopefully. Um, but that, but that's the kind of thing you can imagine happening with the CBDC. Now, I must mention again, whenever we have this conversation the barrage begins of people going, but the Saab has said that South Africa CBDC will be private. And I get that, guys. I know that the policy right now has privacy as a fundamental part of the system, etc. But I'm telling you <laughs> that if they wanted to flip a switch to make it not so private, they could do so pretty instantly. And that's what matters to me, not what their stated intent is. I don't care about intent. I care about action. Yeah, I mean, privacy in the digital space, as long as that transaction is recorded somewhere, it's only sort of a matter of, of very, very soft human rules that are protecting yeah. that, that data, as you say. That's not a, that's not a definite, yeah. that's not a, a good reason to argue for it, although there are very many reasons to argue for it. I suppose there's a lot of assumptions as to what could go wrong. So that's probably important to unpack that. So we're not taking too much of a sort of a mm. unipolar view on what's going, going on here in that we do, as you say, have quite a good central bank. There is a separate 
separation of powers in our current economic setup. The central bank has its own mandate and it isn't exactly dictated to by parliament. Although that could change. That is a potential risk. If government nationalized the central bank, which is also something they have spoken about doing, then suddenly your all your comments about how fantastic the economists working at the bank are, are, are largely irrelevant because then the government would exactly be able to do what they liked. It literally would have access to not just to sort of the piggy banks of things like state assets, but they'd be able to sort of dip their hands into your central bank digital accounts as and when they like and to sort of change the rules on that currency as and when they like. And I think China's a good example there, although I don't like to pick on China too much. It is, it is a case that they have already started rolling out these central bank digital systems and they're doing interesting things like expiring money, for example. So if you're not spending it enough, they can just put an expiry date into that cash. So you have to use it. Things like negative interest rates can be played with. Again, if you've got a good central bank in between, they could act as a sort of break, a, a check on the balances of power. But I suppose a risk would be there when central banks sort of get subsumed by the, the government itself, then you don't have that separation of powers anymore and you've got a huge amount of temptations there. But still, the consequences there aren't as important as long as alternatives remain. So if you are able to have, say, a central bank digital currency, but also still allow cash to remain in circulation, your local cash or cash of a different country, like the US dollar, for example, or like you're speaking about private money, things like cryptocurrencies, do allow citizens to have all those good things that we were speaking about before, things like privacy, things like access, things like control over your own money that isn't controlled by a central power. So you have to make quite a lot of assumptions before we can get to that sort of full dystopian picture where the government can sort of switch your bank accounts on or off and can take whatever they want out of it at any point in time, all of which is technically possible with the central bank mm -hmm. digital currency that's held at the central bank and not with the private bank. We still got to go through a few mm -hmm. little checks and balances to get to it as we do now. So that is, I suppose, the next question to you. How likely is it that we are going to have these other alternatives, both existing fiat in terms of things like cash or forex and then private money in terms of cryptocurrencies themselves. And what are your views on those, those options, which essentially are sort of cash or private digital money as being viable alternatives for citizens today who might be uncomfortable with keeping their entire net worth in an account that is accessible <laughs> to, yeah. to a central banker or a central government authority? So if I had to guess, I'd say that everything in the fiat world and a for people who aren't familiar with the word fiat, that basically describes old world money, rands, dollars, central bank currencies. Um, that entire world will converge on CBDCs. And as you said, this is something that's already happening in China. India is arguably even further ahead in this evolution to uh, digital currency, especially when we talk about getting cash out of the system. Um, and the entire world of, of sort of fiat money, I suspect, will converge on these CBDCs and the network be between them and as with uh, you know the rollout of all state technology it'll be an evolution not a revolution this is something that will happen you know quite slowly until it doesn't um, and um, and eventually that entire world will will kind of converge on on this technology but in terms of the viability of the opposition if you will or the antithesis to that there will always be cryptocurrency and there will always be Bitcoin um, because there's nothing that states can do to stop us from using it so perhaps in China 
um, there would be enough control to really stop people from using Bitcoin. But I can't really think of another country that would have that ability without turning off the internet itself. It's quite worrying that there are actually proposals on tables in China right now to create a secondary internet that <laughs> would be fully under state control. Um, that's quite scary. But even then, you know, there would be a lot of people in China that would, um, you know, be able to access the internet the rest of us are using and, and be able to get around the so-called Great Firewall and the Chinese secondary internet. And of course, nobody in the rest of the world is going to use it. Um, so there's really nothing governments and central banks can do to stop us from using Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. They'll always be around. They're so fundamental to the internet that you would literally have to turn the internet off. And in the case of Bitcoin, even if you did switch the internet itself off, we'd still be able to sync um, nodes using Blockstream satellite infrastructure and other methods. So even, even killing the internet wouldn't kill Bitcoin, which is quite a big idea. Um, but I think it's also worth understanding the difference between these things because, again, people see the use of one technology and assume that something else using that technology is the same thing, you know. Just like I wear a T-shirt and there's a terrorist somewhere that's wearing a T-shirt, so obviously we're the same person, <laughs> you know. It's it's just it's such a, it's such a silly way of thinking about it. Um, because really what matters with Bitcoin is the decentralization of consensus. Um, as I said before, and the fact that nobody can change rules in this, the, the system. You need the entire network of um, nodes and miners and people using Bitcoin to agree on what the rules are before any changes can be introduced. And to me, that's just a better way of doing things. I arrived at cryptocurrency and became fanatical about it because I came from an open source software background um, and from an information science perspective, thinking about the best way for people to collaborate and do things together. So in the case of countries, you know, there are various political experiments that have played out through history and most of them have turned out to be bad ideas. Um, but I think, you know, people with mindsets like mine and yours, Bronwyn, although I won't speak for you, but I think most of the world right now appreciates that democracy is, is the best of all the systems we've tried so far. Um, on the extreme end of the political spectrum, you've got dictatorships uh, where you have a single loci of control. People think of dictators as a single person, but usually it's a party like the Nazis <laughs> um, and they make the rules and nobody in society really has much of a say over you know, what those rules are going to be. You just comply or have horrible things happen to you generally in dictatorships. Um, then somewhere in between, although not that far away, <laughs> you'd have something like the US political system where you've got two parties um, that claim to be stock opposites, but are actually pretty much the same thing, for, especially from a capitalist or economical standpoint. Like they, you know, you're going to get the same thing out of the US economy, whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge, except that the one tends to spend more on military being the Democrats than the other. Um, but but that's really? a kind of a, <laughs> yeah, it's quite fascinating. Military um, spending spiked uh, during Bill Clinton's reign. And then anyway, that's, that, yeah, that's an yeah, aside. So, like it doesn't correlate quite but, as neatly as, as we, as we are told made to believe. Yeah. <laughs> that's the point. But on the, on the spectrum, <laughs> on the spectrum of, you know, dictatorship to full distribution of power, the American system is definitely closer to a dictatorship. There's only two parties. We celebrate companies, uh, companies, countries like South Africa that are multi-party democracies because that's closer to the full promise of democracy where everybody has a say in, you know, the guiding principles of the country and what's being decided uh, by a legislature, etc. It is, so, 
Yeah, it's also important to see that those parties are sort of equally weighted. So South Africa is not yeah. necessarily the best example there too, because there is no yes. viable opposition that can yeah. actually shift policy at the moment. Yeah. Although there are there are examples of that in typically in smaller countries, mm. particularly European ones, where yes. you have that sort of that that weighting that that actually yeah. allows change to happen. So you can ha either either way can end yeah, up yeah. quite quite bad, but still better than a full dictatorship. I think it's more about what's enabled in the system. So. You know, if everybody in a society agrees about everything, then you only need one political party, right? But that's just not reality. And so the idea in a country like South Africa is that it doesn't matter what your worldview is, there will be a political party for you and they might not have that loud a voice in parliament, but they're still there, your voice is still being heard, you have some form of representation in consensus. Now, the ultimate would be a society in which everybody, right, has the ability to weigh in on any policy, um, and everybody, there has to be sufficient kind of consensus before anything is executed on. Now, some people see that as the worst idea in the world, um, and those of us with uh, more belief in humanity <laughs> tend to think that that's the best way for decisions to be made. Um, but certainly when you talk about monetary policy, and especially global monetary policy, because I think a big part of the discussion that's lost on people is the interplay between nations. Um, and how nations hijack each other and sabotage each other um, economically. Um, financial warfare is a fascinating topic, um, and it's something that's ongoing. Um, so to create a level playing field where we have a currency that's globally adopted, where consensus is truly decentralized, it's not fully distributed, but it's sufficiently decentralized that nobody can come and impose their rules on the system. That really is what we need to pave the way for the kind of political system that I think would be ideal um, for society in the 21st century. And that's really the, the hope on, and the dream of Bitcoin, whereas a, a central bank digital currency is the complete opposite of that, where you've got a centralized loci of control. Now, from a technological perspective, and sorry, I'm rambling on here a bit, but I think these are important principles. From a technological perspective, this is what I find so interesting, is the technology that powers Bitcoin, and I don't like referring to the blockchain because that's a word that was made up after bitcoin it doesn't appear anywhere in the bitcoin white paper um and there's this stupid idea that bitcoin that blockchain is the more important story and bitcoin is just one application of it whereas that couldn't be less true um but but if we talk about blockchain the technology, technology known or, as bitcoin <laughs> yeah or the the like the or, artist or formerly known as yeah yes. or nakamoto consensus we could call it as well that entire technological stack was designed to enable trust in a network where you don't have a central authority. You don't require trusted third parties, right? And all of this proof of work, compute power, and hashing that's going on into mining the Bitcoin network, etc., because that's really what's being mined, not just new Bitcoin, but actually the network itself. That, in, that entire infrastructure was designed so that I can transact directly with you, Bronwyn, and we don't need a, a, a trusted third party or a central authority that gives us permission to conduct those transactions or verifies them for us. We've distributed the verification of transactions. Um, and that's the whole reason for the technology to exist. So when a central authority or a company or a trusted third party tries to use the technology themselves, that's about as ham-fisted as any human endeavor gets, right? You're taking something that's whole reason for being is introducing trust without central authorities, and you as a central authority are trying to implement it yourself. 
it's a completely inane idea. You're wasting compute power, you're achieving nothing. And really what it exposes about our existing systems is that they're terrible in their implementation of technology, right? What central banks need is not a central bank digital currency powered by the blockchain. That's literally the, to, to somebody who understands the computer science of blockchains, that's the dumbest thing you could suggest, right? A, a system with no central authorities being used by a central authority. Like what they need to do is implement other existing technologies better. And I'd suggest they start with, I don't know, a SQL database. So they can use MySQL for free. And if they know what they're doing with it, they could do a better job of what they're achieving today in a more secure, more efficient, et cetera way. Or they could get into, you know, non-sequential databases if they really want to get fancy. Or, But my point is that our governments, our central banks, our regulators, bureaucrats are terrible at technology. And what they should do is get better at technology instead of just going after the hype and whatever management consultants and enterprise technology companies are trying to sell them <laughs> um, and really get their heads around how to implement this stuff because blockchain technology is about the worst red herring they could be chasing right now. Those are good points, but let's get into like slightly deeper questions. I know you're not an economist, so it's not, not entirely fair, but, but I kind of okay. am. And these are well, interesting questions. Well, it's not questions. a science, so we can all be artists. <laughs> I know, exactly. You <laughs> can all be artists. It's, just a, it's, a, it's an interesting way to look at the world. And unfortunately, a lot of the way our world is, does work is based on money. But when we talk about money, money is only part of the question. I think we, we, most of us sooner or later get to the point where we understand that money doesn't actually matter. It's what you can do with the stuff that does. And most mm. of our arguments and the reasons for having things like central banks and like having governments at the end of the day is due to the sort of social contract that underpins what a democracy is. So in a democracy, we agree to submit to certain rules and to pay certain fees. We know them as taxes in exchange for getting certain services. So we give up some freedoms, freedom over our money and freedom over what we're allowed to do in exchange for some sort of security, which is enforced by our central authority. That's basically why we have things like nation states and taxation and fiat money. That's, this is what mm. all part of the same sort of package that we've signed up to in this messy thing known as democracy today. So I have two questions for you. The first one is about taxes, because lots of the reasons why particularly our government is interested in implementing these things is to get more taxes, because quite frankly, they're running out of money, not money, running out of the money they can print at will by sort of changing the numbers on the screen, but running out of the sort of money that is actually valued enough by the marketplace to buy things for people that require them. We have a, a society here in South Africa where you had last year during COVID, 60% of South Africans received some form of social grant or charity mm. from the government. That's pretty big. So you understand why the government does require, you know, the getting its, its pound of flesh, as they say, mm. the death and taxes are somewhat inevitable. <laughs> now, listening to what you say, and I think a lot of people have come to this sort of understanding that you can't really get rid of private currencies. And as long as we have private currencies and things like Bitcoin, which, as you said, are unstoppable and are borderless and are, if not entirely private, more private than a lot of the other ways that we can transact. And that does mean that paying tax for a lot of people, particularly people who earn their living in the crypto environment behind those walled gardens, trading amongst other people who also have decent uh, distributed organizations, autonomous organizations, they're not actually tied to a particular geography. 
You don't have to dabble into the world of fiat once the system gets big enough. That's exactly what happens here. I mean, we already have a critical mass where the Bitcoin network is larger than some whole nation state economies. So paying tax becomes optional for, let's say, a number of businesses and for a number of individuals who are lucky enough not to have to sort of go down and play with Caesar's money in the in the real world. It's not for everyone, but a certain class, if you want to put it there, of people, it becomes a more optional practice. What happens there in your perspective? How do governments compete for taxes in a world where taxes are becoming more optional for mm. more smart and literally well-connected people? I think, you know, again, it becomes a philosoph- philosophical discussion around, you know, what you think of, of human beings and your, <laughs> your opinion of humanity. Uh, I personally believe in paying taxes. Um, I think it's, it's a good thing. Uh, but I want to know that my taxes are going towards, you know, the things that, again, stated intent means nothing. So I, I want to know that my taxes are actually being used for public goods and public works and welfare and all of the things that I do believe in. Um, the unfortunate thing in my country and in most countries is that tax money for the most part gets misappropriated, ends up in people's pockets where it shouldn't um, or trapped up in government projects that are corrupt um, or susceptible to corruption. Um, and so... What I think is quite interesting to think about in your example where, you know, tax is optional is that public servants now have to compel you to pay your taxes. Um, You know, they can't be the sheriff of Nottinghood and come and beat down your door and physically abuse you until you do it. (laughs) Um, They actually have to compel you to do it. Now, again, it doesn't matter because it's a personal belief, but my personal belief is that most people would support um, a government that they felt was working in their best interests and would support public works that they believed in um, if they knew that the money was going directly to those things. And so... It's a big if. Well, well, exactly. Um, So I I like this idea of being compelled to pay taxes and of having a very transparent and fair system where it's obvious why I need to pay tax and what my taxes are going towards. Um, and where I can see that, you know, impact being made on a day-to-day basis because my roads are clean and working. I see people being given education for free, receiving free health care. These are other principles I believe in. Um, if I could see that in society, then I would feel compelled to, to pay my taxes. Um, and so I see it as, as a massively positive thing that, um, you know, governments kind of don't, can't just assume that this money will flow in every year they actually need to justify um, to citizens why it should Um, it's also interesting thinking about the globalization that that this takes us towards because um, if i'm a digital nomad for example and i'm not based in any one place and i'm I'm living on the road so to speak um, i could really choose which countries i felt like paying taxes in and when so you know i might decide i want to spend the next three months in iceland so i'll pay taxes in iceland for the next three months um, and i'll contribute towards their economy because that's where i'm going to be um, and when i come back to my home country i'll pay tax there so there are a lot of interesting thought experiments that this opens up when you think about the globalization of of uh, the financial system and and, and really what it means to be a citizen in any one place. Um, so uh, I suppose those, those are some of my, some of my thoughts. Uh, I, I, it's, it's also interesting just looking at where m- most of this discussion begins, which is issuance of currency in, in the U.S. economy. You know, you've, you've, you've got the USA sitting with the world reserve currency in the dollar. 
Um, and really, they don't need taxes because they can print infinite dollars for public works, you know. And this is something that many economists have. And the rest of us have, have to accept them. Yeah. And so literally, when, when the U.S. decides it needs more money, they mint a physical coin made out of platinum. Um, they generally do these in denominations of a trillion dollars. So there's literally a coin in a safe somewhere in the Federal Reserve that is worth one trillion dollars. Um, and very many of these, well not many, six of these coins have been minted quite recently. And so we're sitting here in 2021 where somewhere between 25 and 30% of all the dollars in existence were printed in the last year thanks to the COVID crisis. Not thanks to the COVID crisis, but using that as an excuse. Um, yeah. And and the crazy thing about this is that we're sitting in in a state where there's no inflation in the U.S. either. It's just <laughs> like for some reason they've they've managed to print more money and decided that inflation is not going to happen for now. I, I suspect it has to happen sooner or later. But um, and and actually we're starting to see it pick up now. But my point is, you know, the U.S. isn't that dependent on taxes if you think about it. If you're able to print as much money as you want and there's no inflation, like, yes, tax perhaps keeps the money flowing through the economy, but but you, you kind of don't have the requirement for tax in the U.S. And um, it's sort of interesting to think about why we really need tax for particular things um, and why we need bureaucrats to, to enable those things. So, you know, you could imagine a future in which... Um, there's certain public works that don't require much administration. They run as a DAO or, um, you know, you can you can decide that you want to give a certain amount of your Bitcoin or Ethereum towards a project to build a new highway in your province. <laughs> um, and that money could end up with independent private contractors that go and deliver on the project. And there isn't really a politician or a bureaucrat who's championing this thing or benefiting from it or potentially sticking their hands in the coffers. Like um, we as a society can achieve this thing. And there's a lot of discussion to be had about environmental impact studies and all of the other considerations that go into public works. But it's certainly interesting to think about the efficiencies that could be gained from taking politicians and bureaucrats out of the system um, and just enabling society to run itself without them to a certain extent. <laughs> That's a good point. We are at a very strange point in history where we actually have the technology and the ability to have two entirely different societies or any version in between. Like we actually have the technology available to us to have yeah. a fully automated communist society, like a full control-based <laughs> system. You alluded to China before, like they have the ability, the force, and the and they have shown the inclination they're actually willing to mm. use that force to fully dominate both the terrestrial and the virtual realms of their societies and their economies. And they mm. could close themselves off from the rest of the world and do that and run a fully planned, fully surveilled economy. At the mm. same time, we do have the technology available to us to get rid of government or together and to actually have a total libertarian society both of those versions of society were impossible even a generation ago but we now have the ability to actually do that how we'd actually like living in either of those extremes as the sort of majority of people is an entirely different question I don't think most people would like either of those worlds because the one yeah. is a, a very competitive state of nature which doesn't really suit people who don't find themselves on the far end of the bell curve it really doesn't the other one once again just sort of actually denies your right to be a human being and have any sort of free will whatsoever but I suppose we have to have these conversations and people have to understand that the full realm of, of spectrum of what we can actually have in terms of the mm. menu or the buffet open to designing a society has become extended 
quite dramatically, but it is going to require quite a large disruption over people's day-to-day -day lives and what we expect. Now, the challenge is we're not starting from a blank slate. We're starting from a messy society where many, many people are already dependent on the state. And that, that does obviously change these conversations quite a bit because there's, there's a lot of collateral damage that comes out from the sort of society that you're busy talking about where we can sort of privately fund what we need. We can get donors to put up parks and, and roads and all, all the good things that we want. But at the same time, how really democratic can that be given the very unequal playing field that we have right now? And that's quite a philosophical question it's not fair yeah. to get you to give the answer but i think it's a question worth at least thinking about because there's there's an awful lot of collateral damage that comes on play due to what we've already built the huge instability the huge unfairness of a system which as you say is propped up by sort of trillion dollar coins in america that can be printed at will there's nothing fair about that world but mm. that's the that's the sort of world that we've got mm. not everyone is able to sort of opt out of these systems to the same degree um, if you have a comment on that, go for it. Otherwise, it's not exactly a fair question. So I'm going to avoid pressure you. No, it's, it's fascinating because ultimately this discussion always converges on like anthropology and philosophy and, and like what you think about human nature and what shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed in society. And, and so that's, you know, always going to be a messy discussion. Um, so I, I suppose I have some observations. One is that I find it quite interesting that a lot of this technology enables us to um, operate our trust systems in the same way that they did in tribal societies thousands of years ago, um, where consensus was something that the tribe just did almost intuitively. Um, you know, there are a lot of economic myths that, that people subscribe to, and one of them is about the barter system, that in ancient cultures, everything was a direct barter, like I was trading fish for pumpkins or whatever the example is. Um, and of course, that's not true. We've always had money in some form, call it IOU notes, for as long as we've had language and the ability to interact with each other. Um, because the barter system has a big problem called concurrency. You know, I've caught a fish today that's going to be off in two days and you've just planted your pumpkin. So I can't swap my fish for your pumpkins, right? I can give you the fish now and you can give me something that I can uh, use as a token of your promise that I can have pumpkins four months from now. We've And we've always had this, you know. Um, and and so the way that those trust systems worked in ancient tribal societies was that there wasn't necessarily a chief or a central authority um, that uh, that enabled this trust system and, and verified all of the transactions happening. There certainly was an authority you could go to if you felt that you had been done in, um, but that was usually a pretty kangaroo court ordeal as well where the tribe would decide whether or not this was a fair transaction or you were hard done by um so 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 just interesting thinking that trust was distributed in those societies you know like the other 50 people in the tribe would know that bronwyn owed me some pumpkins and so if i didn't get my pumpkins you know <laughs> horrible things would happen to bronwyn <laughs> um, but of course that distributed <laughs> trust system didn't scale and so we needed central or ba central banks and you know we needed uh, authorities or trusted third parties that we could transact through in order for our economies to scale and interact to connect the tribes together um but it's interesting that we're now at a point where we're almost ready to unlock our superpowers as a human tribe and go, okay, well, we're now at a point where we don't really need to think of ourselves as these kind of separate units that are interacting with each other and enabling trade. We can just be one. 
and we can distribute our consensus back again to the tribe <laughs> um, and we can collectively you know enable transactions within the system without requiring a central authority or trusted third party and so um you know and so what it's interesting <laughs> i suppose it's an observation it's interesting, it's interesting. <laughs> i suppose i suppose what it's all sort of leading towards is if we've sort of spoken about this sort of tax social contract question but that sort of just points to the, the big question which is what where to here for the for the nation state sort of henry kissinger world order right does it does it yeah. even fit does it make sense in a world where both the central bank digital currencies which actually actually as you said are part of a globalist world order they're going to be connected mm -hmm. to each other they all run the same global economy at the same time competing with completely borderless private currencies mm -hmm. and of course currencies underpin societal structures it's almost like we look at it the wrong way around we kind of think mm -hmm. that society is separate to these economic systems but it's really just the sort of the the accounting for what we're doing in our interactions anyway exactly. do nation states even make sense sort of a 50 100 <laughs> years from now Possibly, I, I, who knows? I mean, so many people have made the observation that, that the only way you truly unify humanity is with an extraneous threat like an alien invasion, and then we'd finally pull together to, to overcome. But don't we have one of those? Converge. Well, we don't aliens even have aliens. Aliens are back on the so table, right? <laughs> no. The Navy having weird readings from their instruments about things in the sky is back on the table. <laughs> there absolutely but, but, is but nothing Simon, pointing saying, towards aliens. <laughs> but, but Simon, you're saying, you're saying that all it would draw us together is a sort of a existential threat, but the aliens don't have to exist or not. Whether they exist or not is irrelevant True. as long as the threat yeah. is, is real and yeah, present yeah. enough. Which is which yeah. is what more what I'm getting at, right? So we sure, have we have the alien narrative <laughs> if we want to bring it into play. Yeah. And if we don't, we've got a pretty good sort of second container yes. in terms of the, the climate question. It's, right? You so know, it's a it's, unifying uh, conversation. It's, it's such globalization to me as well is it's such a fascinating topic because you know, part of what I love about being alive and being a human being is the diversity in culture and societies. And it's why we love traveling, right? Is we, we love the novelty of seeing how different another society can be. And, and so I do worry that we lot lose a lot of that cultural nuance and the things that make us interesting as human beings, diversity. A lot of that, you know, potentially goes away in globalization. Although that's kind of a pessimistic, cynical view as well. It doesn't have to, you know, you can have global currencies and you can, you can, I don't like the, the idea of a one world government, for example, but I don't believe we need one either. Um, so they're, 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 you know, they're, <laughs> they're kind of various ways to, to look at it. But it, it's kind of interesting that uh, if you look at, uh, talk about, you know, cultural nuances, if you look at our, our, our world religions, they, there's, there's a singular lesson that they almost without fail all try to teach, including Satanism, um, which, is, which is first do no harm, right? Um, and it's almost like we've always understood that if we're, if we're going to succeed at this, at this human project, that needs to be our guiding light. Um, and to me, it's like if we can get that right and distribute that idea <laughs> and just making sure that we're first doing no harm, um, it's 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 a pretty powerful principle and and you know something that can guide every decision you make in your life is am i harming somebody else uh, if i am i should probably think about this very deeply and if i'm not nobody should tell me whether or not i can do this thing like if i'm not hurting anybody then 
you know, of course you're not, you shouldn't be able to weigh in on my sexual preferences, what money I want to use, what big books I want to read, the way I want to color my hair, the clothes I wear, I am not harming you. So, and, and I suppose the important caveat there is that hurting your feelings doesn't count as harm. Like, I'm sorry that pink hair offends you, but that's not harm. <laughs> you've got to define <laughs> harm. Yes, you've got to define harm. Harm has got to be probably objective, not subjective. Otherwise it doesn't really count, right? Yeah. yeah. So unless, unless anyone would consider themselves harmed by that, <laughs> we've got to ask a few more questions. Although yeah. that also gets you into trouble with the, with the few sadists among us who actually enjoy being harmed, which opens a whole yes. <laughs> lot of yeah. different questions, which is why you need the gold, silver and that other rule, right? So just sort of yeah. like paint it all together. But yeah. we've completely d derailed this conversation. Absolutely. But the, the point still stands. So the point is, as soon as you start talking about money, you're really talking about people and then you're talking about sort of existential crises, right? That's the, that's the way we should be approaching all of this. Everything is connected. Yeah. Uh, if you have any more comments, now's your chance. Otherwise, can you tell people where to find you if they want to ask you more serious or more simple questions? Or, or if you don't want to be found, that's fine too. <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, it's uh, it's quite pleasing that our conversations get as derailed on here as they do when we're sitting with a glass of wine. <laughs> um, now, if people want to find me, it's very easy. Twitter's probably the best place at Simon Dingle, so let's let's keep it simple. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks very much. And if you've got anything else, any parting any parting words of wisdom, otherwise, enjoy your day. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I, I mean, I just I would encourage people to to look beyond the news when it comes to CBDCs and and cryptocurrencies and and what we are talking about because there are a lot of agendas out there that are being brought to bear on the news. Um, so, for example, if you're reading a story about how Bitcoin wastes electricity, um, you can trace that back to an advertorial that was placed by a financial institution a few years ago. And it's, it's utter nonsense. If you just spend five minutes researching or thinking about it and the fact that YouTube uses about 200 times more electricity than the entire Bitcoin network for arguably not much more value, uh, then, uh, then that should answer it for you. But my broader point is that there's just so much misinformation and fud out there. Um, but, but if you really do get into the space, there are people with fantastic intentions trying to do a very good thing. Um, so I'd encourage people just to learn a little bit more about what's actually trying to be achieved here. Yeah? From all sides, everyone's got an agenda. Some people are just selling exactly. you things that will do less harm rather than more yeah. harm, right? And I, I love, I love, you know, what you say at the outset of your show is don't believe us, don't listen to me, don't listen to Bronwyn, go and do your own research, don't trust, verify. That's the, the basis of the Bitcoin movement is don't trust us. Don't listen to us. You need to make up your own mind and do your own research. And we are just here to give you ideas to follow. <laughs> exactly. Definitely don't take everything I say straight off the plate. Think, think for yourself. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good way to end this. Yeah. Thanks very much, Simon. Thank you, Bronwyn. Cheers. Bye.